What's up, everybody? We hope that you are feeling alive like Ms. Beats. I'm Josiah Keneally. And I'm Micah Keneally. And we are here in the studio today where we want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. So we are joined today by a great friend of ours, Dr. Alan Tennyson. And Dr. Tennyson is the Dean of College Church Leadership at North Central University, which is located downtown Minneapolis. Go so Rams. Go Rams. So all three of us in this room are Rams because not only is he a professor, but Josiah and I, we are both a alum at North Central University and couldn't be happier to say that. So, But before teaching at North Central University, Dr. Tennyson spent a number of years as a college and young adult pastor in California, and we want to turn it over to you. Welcome. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in ministry? I would love to. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, My journey to ministry really begins from my childhood because I grew up in a pastor's home. I had uh, two parents who were in full-time ministry. Uh, both co-pastoring, and they were phenomenal. Uh, I, I was very blessed to grow up in the kind of home where my parents were the same behind closed doors as they were behind the pulpit, so I never struggled with seeing hypocritical images of the faith. Wow. So it made it very easy for me to believe in God. Uh, but my parents were also fairly well-known in our region for their ministry, which meant that I was always known as their son. And it it made it very hard for me to imagine what I would do in my life because I didn't want to follow in their footsteps. I wanted to be my own person. And it took just a radical sense of God's calling for me to finally accept God is calling me into full-time ministry. So I went to college for that. Uh, After college, went to seminary. Uh, Just because I loved, I went to Evangel University. Uh, I'm still going to say go Rams, but I went to Evangel (laughs) University, and a phenomenal, phenomenal university, Uh, but I felt even when I was done that I just didn't know uh, the Christian faith as well as I wanted to. I had such a passion for learning that was birthed there, so I went to seminary. While there, I served as a youth pastor. Uh, After there, I went to another church, served as a youth pastor there, Uh, not so much because I felt a deep call to youth ministry, but because I felt a call to pastoring, and I was so young, they'd only give me a youth group. (laughs) And so, you know, I did that for a while, then as an executive pastor, uh, loved where I was at, but continued to feel this burden for learning, Mm -hmm. uh, that God wasn't done putting in me yet what he wanted me to give out. And so I went into a PhD program in California, and right away, God opened doors for me. It was the craziest thing. It's a funny story. So I'm I'm an executive pastor in Missouri. Uh, I get accepted to Fuller Seminary and Full Fellowship, which was, again, a God thing, because they made a mistake. (laughs) They actually told me when I got there, they didn't mean to give it to me. And and it was this it was an incredible thing, right? No, I, I didn't deserve it. And then they they gave it to me. I did not I'm know here. this. Yeah, story. yeah. A lot of things in my life I don't deserve. And and it just so uh my first Sunday, I, I went to this church wow. that uh I had a couple in my church in Missouri who had moved there to retire, and he had been the president of a major bank in Los Angeles and had been the head of the board of this church in California for years. And he said to me, You've got to go to my church when you go to California. First Sunday, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not thinking much about it. So I I go there because I promised. First Sunday, I get there late because it's Southern California and I don't know how to get anywhere. Right. So I go up, 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 and and I don't realize how big the church is because I've always pastored in smaller churches. So this is a large church. Uh, I go into the balcony, the whole, it's full, right? There's no place to sit downstairs. I go to the balcony. I'm getting there right at the end of worship. 
So I go and sit down, and as soon as I sit down, worship ends, and the senior pastor stands up and says, is Alan Tennyson here this morning? Stop. Calls oh my, my name, and I just said, I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't go to the bathroom first. And so I kind of sheepishly wave my hand, and, you know, so when the choir says, he's up there. And so, you know, he's like, you know, so-and-so called me. I want to meet with you after church. And from that point, I had a job at that church that God had just opened it again. I don't deserve it, right? And so there I was there for about 15 years, uh, serving in a variety of capacities, singles pastor, a young adult pastor, teaching pastor. At one point, I was even the director of a school of ministry, and I was, you know, in a sense, the seniors pastor. And so just kind of this amazing, and it, you know, place. It's also where I met my wife. Uh, who was also working there, and we had the opportunity to have a 12-year courtship. And a part of it is just simply this. I was the singles pastor, meaning mm-hmm. if you were single, I'm your pastor. I'm not going to date in the church mm-hmm. right? because I, I just can't cross that line for me. That's just So it wasn't until she felt God's calling her to uh, missions and she left our church to go overseas that now we were able to start a relationship by email. Wow. And so this is kind of funny, but she was there for about four years, and we have continued this online relationship. And so she basically emails me one day and says, you know, it's time for me to either renew my commitment here or to come home. Do I have a reason to come home? And so I had to say, yes, you do. Come back. I do deserve you. I do deserve yes. you. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, then there and uh, had this incredible opportunity to come to North Central after I, I did a Ph.D. program while I was there. Mm-hmm. And so pastored and, and was a doctoral student during most about half that time. Wow. Uh, and then finally, uh, North Central gave me this opportunity, and my wife and I prayed about it and felt like it was God's will for us to move from L.A. to Minnesota because we'd heard about the wonderful weather. Yes. And so we moved up here, and I've been at NCU now starting my ninth year. Wow, that's amazing. It is amazing. That's a fun story. <laughs> I, I've known you, I think, one of your first years in, actually, mm-hmm. I'm positive. My first year at North Central was 2010. I think it was your first my year. My first year is 2011. Okay, okay, so I was there during your first year. So I remember that, mm-hmm. and I've known you a while ever since, took many of your classes. I did not know a couple of those stories, so that is fun. And I will just say one last thing about you, Dr. Tennyson, to our audience. There is so much fun. It's it's so fun to learn from you because you are the perfect blend of charismatic and theological. You make learning fun and interactive, so that's why we're especially excited to dive into a topic today of theology and ideological questions, theological questions that young adults are facing, students in our world are facing. So we're going to ask one of the brightest minds in our in our world about these questions. Yeah, so we're just going to kick it off. I'm going to skip over question one because you gave us your resume. You are obviously chosen by God. You are furthering his kingdom. Your education is off the charts. I also had you in the classroom, and I would be like, he knows far more than anybody I've ever met. And it's just an honor to just be even one of your students um, during those times. And so we know that you're constantly around young adults. They're in your classroom, face-to-face. And in your experience as a pastor and as a professor, what is the number one theological question young adults are asking? And maybe even thinking about what, yo- what should young adult pastors and ministry leaders be teaching? 
That is a great question. Uh, I, I think in, in one sense, and I'm glad you kind of preface that, what's the theological question? Because most of the questions you get in ministry, even though there's a, a theological foundation or background, they're very personal questions. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'd argue most people are asking the same question. I, I used to, when I, when I was in California, for a time I was overseeing our young adults and our seniors ministry. And so I sometimes put those together. So I would have young adults who felt called to ministry that I was mentoring that I would say, okay, first time you preach, it's going to be in the senior service because the seniors are the most supportive group in the church. It's the easiest thing to do to preach before seniors because they so want you to succeed. And they will amen you, and they will, and you can be horrible, and they will clap and hug you at the end. I'm like, it's the, it's, it is a safety net to preach before yes. seniors. Wow. And so I, I would say to young people, you're going to preach, young adults. And I remember one of them looked at me, and they're like, I, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in my 20s. What, what, what do I say to a senior citizen? And I just say, just close your eyes and imagine they're people. Because they are people. Because that's the thing. Everywhere you go, you're preaching to people. Mm-hmm. People have the same kinds of questions. Uh, so you have a 23-year-old who can't afford college but can't find the job they're looking for because they don't have a college degree, and they're asking, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And you have a 55-year-old who has just lost his job, and he cannot find a job in the same field because of ageism, mm-hmm. and he's asking the same question, what do I do? And so a lot of those questions you face as a pastor, it, they're universal. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, different context, but it's the same kind of question. For a lot of young adults, though, what, what, what's more specific to their age? And I would probably put the question this way. I, I'm going to kind of elaborate on it because there's different ways you can ask the same question. But I would put it this way. Basically, how do I live successfully in the world as a faithful Christian adult? Uh, they're you know, living out their adulthood on their own for the first time. And there's two parts to that question. How do I live successfully in the world as an adult? But how do I remain a faithful Christian while doing so? Mm-hmm. And so this question, you know, is also asking, you know, how do I integrate my spiritual formation with my vocational formation, uh, with my sexual formation? And that also includes who do I marry uh, and with my moral formation, you know. So I have young people coming to me and saying, man, Pastor, you know, I, I have this great job uh, working for restaurants, but it's, it's in the alcohol industry. Mm-hmm. Can I do this as a Christian? I'm not drinking, but can I do this? Or, you know, in California, I had quite a few people who were working in the entertainment industry, uh, both in front of and behind the camera. And so they're asking the question, what roles do I have to turn down as a Christian? What can I say yes to? It's just acting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's vocational formation. How do I integrate my spiritual formation with my vocational formation? A moral formation, you know, how, how do I, what stance am I supposed to take on certain issues? And I think today, for a lot of young adults, and this becomes much more of a theological question, uh, they're asking this in this way, how do I, as a faithful Christian adult, navigate a world uh, where the question of LGBTQ rights Mm -hmm. is regarded, you know, if not as the greatest moral question of our time, at least as a litmus test for those who are moral and for those who are not. And I've grown up in this world, you know, this generation is growing up in a more post-Christian culture than any generation before them. Right. And so the moral lines have shifted. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like, can I remain a moral person and be a Christian because of where I'm at on these issues? Uh, How do I reconcile the morality of the greater culture with the biblical tradition of the church? And so I find this question coming up more and more and more. 
In fact, I think for me, the verse that, that really stands out in Scripture as a verse that I think our generation now is struggling with, and, and I love it because of the, the, the it's actually 1 Kings 18.21. So I think that 18 and that 21. Oh, my word. <laughs> but it's, it's Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he looks at Israel and he says to them, how long will you go wavering between these two options? If Baal is God, serve him. If Yahweh is God, serve him. You can't keep limping between these two things. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of young adults, they're growing up in a world where they've been given these two options. How do I bring these together? Do I have to give up something Mm -hmm. in order to be faithful or do I have to give up this in order to be faithful to the culture? And I think that's a major theological question. And I think the church hasn't done a good job in general, I'm not, not calling out a specific tradition or denomination, in helping young adults learn how the Christian faith prepares them for adulthood. Uh, one way that, that I think we haven't done as good a job is how many times, and maybe especially in white evangelical churches, mm-hmm. we don't deal with the major questions of the day because we're afraid of sounding political from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. But then you have young people who, before they become adults, are growing up in this church, recognizing that this is the only space in our world right now where people aren't asking these questions. So I remember having students at North Central who were angry that we have these police shootings in Minneapolis, everyone is talking about Black Lives Matter, and the only place where it seems not to exist is when I go to church on Sunday. And if people in this community aren't prepared to help me navigate these issues, then I'm going to have to find some community that can, because these are the issues that are real. Mm-hmm. And I think that if the church isn't careful and we try to avoid things for the sake of offense, that, well, we don't want to get political, what we do is we abdicate that role in helping people develop themselves spiritually and we abdicate it to other institutions. Sure, like maybe the culture, you mean? Or, or even a secular university. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of students who yeah. go to secular schools don't come back to the church mm-hmm. because this right. place has taught me how to be an adult and how to form myself in a way that this other community didn't. And so, you know, I, I want to help them navigate this as a professor at a Christian school, but still, that's not their church. That's not the place where they've been raised. That's not the place. So there's this massive responsibility that we have to help integrate their spiritual formation with their vocational formation, their sexual formation, and their moral formation. Oh, my word. That is so (laughs) profound. So, Dr. Tennyson, we realize in today's world the Bible and the authority of Scripture is paramount, but at the same time, Bible literacy among Generation Z is about 4%. It is at an all-time low. How do we approach this as leaders? How do we navigate why is the Bible important, but how do we address our world and this generation? I think the greatest crisis in the American church is our changing relationship with Scripture. Uh, It's almost as if we're moving from a healthy marriage with the Bible where we live under the same roof, we share the same food, eat at the same table, share the same bed, we are, we are in a dynamic relationship, to now moving to a period of separation, uh, where we want to stay married, but we just don't want to live under the same roof. Wow. Uh, we'll keep pictures of the Bible on our wall, but we don't want to talk to the Bible every day. Mm. And, and I wow. think that's, that's this, it, it's, it's really the, the it's, 
it's really uh, a, uh, a move that eventually ends at divorce. I believe there's a crisis of confidence in the authority of the Bible, and that's directly related to the crisis of biblical literacy. And I would put it this way. I think sometimes we have this assumption that we don't know Scripture because we don't trust Scripture. But I think probably it's more that we don't trust the authority of Scripture because we don't know Scripture, mm -hmm. because we don't know how to read it. If I'm learning to get on in my life without Scripture, then suddenly it becomes harder for Scripture to interrupt my life and tell me how to live differently because you weren't there yesterday. Uh, and part of it is a cultural change. It's not just a change in the church. The culture as a whole has moved away from sharing these common stories. You know, uh, one example is, is that people today, if I ask them on the street or in the church, what's the relationship between Jacob and Esau? They would have a much harder time answering that question than if I asked them, what's the relationship between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader? It's mm. true. That's More true. people would say mm -hmm. father and son than they'd be able to answer brothers because these just aren't the common stories that we share anymore. And of course, biblical literacy is more than just knowing the story of the Bible. It's also knowing how to read the Bible, both in its historical and literary context, and how to apply Scripture. How do I apply it faithfully in light of the whole revelation of God in Christ? And so biblical literacy covers that, but it, it is the guide. It is the source. It is, it is the story of the church that over time becomes the story of my life. And the more illiterate I become, the more my story diverges from the story of what God is doing in the world. So this, I think, is the greatest crisis in the American church. And I would, I would probably say that the more or maybe the longer we remain illiterate as a community, uh, the greater, uh, or I'd say probably the, the quicker the expiration date is on the church in, a, in, the, in this country, at least a church that we would recognize as Christian. Uh, for me, the key uh, to biblical literacy has to be the church. The church is our interpretive community. It's where we come together and we learn to read Scripture as a whole. In fact, part of the very reason that the church exists is to teach Scripture, how to interpret it, and uh, how to apply it in our lives faithfully. So as leaders, one thing we have to make a center, central part of our ministry is how to teach the Bible. We have to know how I'm going to incorporate this in my ministry with young adults, with students. And of course, if we're going to teach the Bible, that also means that we have to know the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a few years ago, we met with a lot of alumni from North Central who were in youth ministry because we were analyzing the effectiveness of our youth programming. You know, how, how are we doing in raising up youth pastors? Mm -hmm. And so we asked them this question, what classes did we teach you that you have relied on the most in your ministry now? And what classes are you like, man, that just wasn't worth it for me? And one of the answers they, they all said was the Bible classes. And here's what I thought was funny. One of the youth pastors said this. He said, you know, he said, I kind of regretted, uh, one, not paying better attention in class when I was there. He said, but for some reason, it didn't hit me that I was going to have to preach from the Bible every week. He said, that just somehow escaped me. And now he said, I'm in this, and I'm like, I've really got to know this. Wow. And so we have to know it so that we can teach it. We have to know how to teach it so that people can get it. I think one reason we're, you know, I've heard some pastors say to me, because I've had this conversation in ministry for years, well, people just don't want to hear the whole story of the Bible. I had one pastor say to me once, let's just be honest, Alan, uh, that Christians don't need the whole Bible. 
And I said, well, what parts of the Bible do they need? And he gave me like a list of eight books. Oh, my word. Yeah. Wow. And I'm like, well, I said, one, how do you know that next generation, we won't have that list down to three? Wow. And the next generation will have that list down to one. And two, what have you just lost in, in getting it down to these eight books? I've, a, I've actually done this with some of my students, not at North Central, but at another school where I asked them, uh, you know, here's all the books of the Bible. Now tell me, what do you really think you don't need as a Christian? And they would give me these honest answers. So someone says, minor prophets. We don't need minor prophets. So I write up on the board, social justice, and I cross it out. Okay, there goes social justice. What else do we not need? Wow. Leviticus. I mean, come on, how many of you do divisions in Leviticus? <laughs> so then holiness of God, write it up there, I cross it out. Everything we have in the Bible gives us something that is essential to becoming not just mature Christians individually, but becoming a mature Christian community if we learn how to apply it. So we have a responsibility as leaders to make sure that the people under our ministry, under our care, are maturing as believers in their knowledge of the Word. As a pastor, you have to understand what young adults don't know in your ministry, what they need to know the most right now in order to grow. And you also have to make sure you don't fall into the trap of only teaching as if everyone there is a seeker. You know, sometimes the church has struggled is that we think our mission is make converts, not make disciples. Mm -hmm. Right. So that we're always teaching to get people to say a prayer with us rather than getting them to a 50-year relationship with Christ. Wow. How do I live? What am I doing that's getting people from being the new believer to becoming the mature believer? And again, for that, you have to have the whole of Scripture. Um, every book there is there for a reason. We need the whole Bible for the whole church for our whole growth. Because without the Bible, we just don't know who we are. Absolutely. That is a great way of describing that, looking at that. For those of you who are listening, um, this is what it's like to sit in on the class. I think I'm just sitting here with my mouth wide open, and I don't think I've blinked this whole time he's responding to these questions because they're so deep and they're so honest and they're so relevant to today, uh, which leads me to this next question, and this has been something that is almost like an epidemic, I would say, or a new way of living life and it's always been there but it's just seemed amplified and that is gender identity and we know it's a hot topic in our world uh, what can ministers ministers and leaders do to navigate the culture and be and be known that we what we are for and what we are you know against um and sometimes i think people take that very personally like you're against me so how can we come to those people not at them to say i'm for this that you know I, what I'm I want I want you to know what I'm for. I don't want you to know what I'm against or to yes. think that that's all I am is I'm against this. Right. We we find ourselves, you know, that every it, we're always described as anti something. Mhm. Mm yeah, I think you have to understand what's it de what's at stake in the gender identity debate on both sides. And I think what we tend to do is we only think about what's at stake on one side. Mhm. Mm so on the one hand, you have uh, conservative Christians who are really concerned that in this debate we're going to lose a biblical distinction between male and female that's actually necessary for the continuation of human life. So that this really gets for them at what does it mean to be human? What's a human being for? And uh, that the debate disrespects the sanctity of the body. For a lot of committed Christians, that, that is a major issue. Uh, sometimes you don't realize just how central the sanctity of the body is to the Christian faith. 
uh, we don't believe the afterlife is simply souls going to heaven when you die. It's a resurrection. Uh, without a body, you're incomplete. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that, that is a central, the central tenet of our faith. And so the sanctity of the body is, is huge. And so when you find some people reacting so strongly to this, for them it's because they feel these are things that are at stake, that are central to how they understand what it is to be a human being. Now, on the other hand, we have people who are struggling with gender dysphoria, with this sense of feeling like that they are in the wrong body, to the extent that the trans community has the highest attempted suicide rate in the country at 41%. No one else has these numbers. Uh, it is an epidemic. And we can't ignore what's at stake on the other side. Uh, you can't ignore the pain uh, that leads to people's death while we're trying to maintain our witness to the continuation of life. So I think as Christians, we have to understand what's at stake on both sides. And you have to be very careful that you don't jump into a culture war that tries to force the Christian faith into a series of boxes that can't hold it. Uh, you know, I was like to say, there's always more than just two boxes. There's always more than just for and against, because there's always almost more options than what our culture is giving us. Mm -hmm. And if you try to fit Christianity into just one thing, those boxes are small because they're so culturally specific. Mm -hmm. If you try to force Christianity into just one thing, you start losing what the faith is, and people who only see the part of the faith that's in that box grossly misunderstand mm -hmm. what it means to be a Christian. So we have to always be for people, whether we agree with them or disagree with them. The Bible prohibits behavior. It never prohibits people. Absolutely. But we also have to recognize that agreement can't be a precondition for love. Mm -hmm. Because once that happens, you end up making a hater out of everyone. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we have to recognize that you love people regardless. And that third way, I think, for us, through a culture war in every debate, is to show love in such a way that the love that we have can't be denied even in light of our disagreement. That's good. And I think if people think of us as haters because we disagree, it may just be that we haven't shown so much love that it changes the nature of that disagreement. You know, I, I, let me give you an example to, to kind of highlight this because I, I want to speak directly. I'll give you an example you probably haven't had yet, the Kardashians. You've, you've heard of them, right? <laughs> yep. Uh, so I'm not, a, I'm not a, someone who watches the Kardashians. I don't even know what channel they're on, but I know they're a thing because I, I am on social media. So a few weeks ago, Chloe uh, Kardashian uh, shows a, uh, a picture of, I've seen this T-shirt before, and it simply says, love thy neighbor. And then underneath it says, love thy Christian neighbor, love thy Muslim neighbor, love thy Jewish neighbor, love thy straight neighbor, love thy gay neighbor, love thy racist neighbor, right? I mean, it just lists all of these varieties. People apparently on Twitter erupted because she said or showed a picture that said, love thy racist neighbor. Hmm. How dare you love a racist? You don't love her, because it's this idea that if we confuse love and agreement, you can't love someone you disagree with. 
you can't love a racist, right? I mean, that's what people were offended by. Now, let's, let's look at the, very quick, the story of the Good Samaritan. The whole point of the Good Samaritan is in that story, the Jews were the racists, right? They, they rejected Samaritans because of their ethnicity. So a Samaritan comes along, sees a Jewish man who has been beaten lying in a ditch, a man who you would assume hates him, and what does he do? He loves his racist neighbor. That's the point of the story. Mm -hmm. He's the good Samaritan because he loves the racist neighbor. So now you have a culture that's saying Jesus is wrong. He's wrong about this. You can't do this. And I see that as an incredible opportunity for the church because the more and more our culture becomes post-Christian, the harder and harder our culture will see loving those you disagree with. Mm -hmm. Because what is it that makes Christian love unique? One thing is our ability to love our enemies. You know, it's easy to love your allies. Mm -hmm. And in the culture war, what people end up loving are policies. They love issues. They love allies. But that's all different than just loving people. Christians have an opportunity to love people, which includes enemies. And I think it's that love in this climate that will show us for who we are more than any other thing. This is so good. Dr. Tennyson, I'm over here taking notes, <laughs> and I'm also just <laughs> thinking about what's, what's next. But the next question we have is pretty similar. Sexual brokenness is the topic of the next question, and is this new? What is the state of our culture currently, and can you give us wisdom into this? Well, I think in, in one sense, it depends on what we mean by sexual brokenness. It, people have always experienced a certain level of sexual brokenness because they have experienced uh, a certain level of sexual unfaithfulness and unhealthiness, right? Uh, one of my favorite quotes about reality comes from a science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick, who just says, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Hmm. And I think there is a reality in the world that shapes morality. In fact, you could even define morality as simply those behaviors that in such a way doesn't turn reality into your enemy. And that applies uh, to sexuality. Sexual brokenness is the consequence of sexual behavior that turns reality into an enemy. And in that sense, you might say it's not new. You know, that if we live this way, we are going to suffer these kinds of consequences, and it becomes very unhealthy for us. And of course, there's been a number of cultures uh, throughout history that have different versions of sexual morality that have all been more or less successful in building stable communities and healthy people because of those moralities. Christianity has had a very consistent sexual morality based on a belief in the role of human beings as God's image in the world. That doesn't mean Christians have always lived that out faithfully. But we've had a very consistent 2,000-year-old understanding of what sexual ethics are and how to live that out faithfully as a recognition of what it means to be God's image in the world. We started seeing this massive change for us in the church, in this country, in the 20th century. You know, and, and sometimes I'll do this where I'll start writing decades on the board in class when we talk about this, and I talk about what has shifted this. So in the 1920s, a major technological shift that impacted us was the creation of cars. Right. You know, mass production, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And when you have mass production of cars, for the first time, you have a way to get away. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you have a car that could also function as uh, a place to, uh, you know, you have a back seat, right? 
you have a place where you can get away. And with the creation of cars, you have something that also became a new cultural phenomena, and that was all these towns started putting up hotels. Again, what are hotels? Your private bedrooms that you rent for the night. And so people who didn't have the access to, say, commit adultery or, or just premarital sex before now had a greater access to do that with this technology. 1950s, we have the GI Bill. So many people are now going to college, right. and wow. college puts off marriage for a lot of people, right? So that before you get married right out of high school, you're entering a sexual peak, boom, you're getting married. Mm-hmm. People are getting pregnant right away, mm-hmm. baby boom. But now as college becomes the norm, People are putting off those years for marriage, and now it creates that extra tension. Hey, let's put all these guys and girls who normally would be getting married four years ago in the same space for four years and see what happens. 1960s, we finally have the sexual revolution, where what was considered uh, to be inappropriate now becomes treated as a norm to be celebrated. Uh, 1970s, we have uh, the real beginning of the gay rights movement after the Stonewall riots. Uh, 1980s, the AIDS crisis. 1990s, the creation of the internet. All of these things are shaping the way that we understand sexuality and shaping the debate that's going on in the 20th century. They all have profound social consequences. But I think at the heart of all of this change is the idea that sex is now seen more as an experience than it is as a relationship. That sex becomes an experience whose purpose is to fulfill a desire for that experience, rather than a relationship whose purpose is to fulfill a desire for another person. You know, think of how we even talk today. We'll talk about a sexual experience based on performance. How was he? Rather than who was he? These become, even our speech kind of betrays how we understand these things. Uh, to uh, uh, a therapist who I actually absolutely love, uh, Jack and Judy Balswick from Fuller Seminary, uh, have argued that sexual healthiness, because I think we're going to define brokenness, we need to define healthiness. Mm-hmm. What does it look like when it's not broken? That sexual healthiness has to be defined by these four things. It has to be defined by acceptance, by knowing or intimacy, by commitment, and by empowerment. That when you are in a healthy sexual life, It is where you have received grace, where you are fully known for who you are, whether you are loved in spite of who you are, Mm -hmm. and where you have the freedom, the empowerment to be who you are in that relationship. So now you think about this, acceptance or grace, knowing or intimacy, commitment or love, empowerment or freedom, and look at how that compares to the way that we see sex today, where commitment is now replaced by convenience. Grace uh, becomes replaced by judgment, right? It's all about performance. You know, I've counseled young people who are getting married, and they're so afraid about how they're going to do that first night. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for them, that's what sex has become. I want to be able to, especially if I'm marrying someone who's had a, 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 a sexual history that doesn't match my own, suddenly I have this insecurity. Because we're judging it based on performance, not based on grace. Uh, where intimacy is now replaced with superficiality. And then finally, in place of empowerment, I think we have more controllingness, or even just more apathy, that we don't empower this person to be who they are sexually because we're controlling them, or they're just, they've met our needs for the night, and so you can go on your way. So I think this has had a negative impact on our formation as individuals, on the family, 
as this holistic and healthy functioning unit. And uh, I think the kind of analogy I, I go back to is I imagine a world where everybody smokes. Just imagine this. We live in a world, you know, uh, hypothetically, where everybody smokes. You get turned 14 and 15, your parents take you out to buy your first part carton of cigarettes, right? Uh, we also live in a world where the leading cause of death is lung cancer. And yet in that world, people just assume because lung cancer is normal, that means it's natural. Hmm. That if everyone smokes and everyone gets lung cancer, well, that's just what happens. And you say, no, I think if we stop smoking, we wouldn't have people dying of lung cancer like they are. Well, no, people died of lung cancer before this. And if it's not lung cancer, it'll be something else. Mm -hmm. So that we say sometimes as Christians, if we weren't living this kind of sexual life in our culture, we wouldn't have the kind of problems we have in our culture. Well, no, no, people had these problems before. People, It's like we live in a world where everyone dies of lung cancer, but we're so committing to smoking, we're willing to make that exchange. We live in a world where we're so concerned that we're not going to be able to do whatever we want to sexually, that we're willing to live with the brokenness that comes naturally because of it. You know, one of my great favorite quotes about this actually comes from the chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And this is his kind of like, he's speaking as the chief rabbi in England, uh, but this is his whole take on it. He's talking about where sex has become an almost value-free zone. And he says, there has been a divorce between sex and love, love and marriage, marriage and feeling, reproduction and education and nurture. Sex is for pleasure. Love is a feeling, not a commitment. Marriage is now deeply unfashionable. Nurture has been outsourced to specialized care centers. Education is now the responsibility of the state, and the consequences of failure are now delegated to social workers. And we're okay with this, because we've made this exchange where we would rather have the sexual freedom, even if it costs us this level of sexual brokenness. I just had a visual of just what does that mean um, to be confused with where we're at and what we're doing and what we're dealing with. And sometimes I thought about like a fruit to root issue. And if we can identify and help others in ministry, out of ministry, in the world, of the world, I mean, we we get to be the light to, to everybody. We don't have to, we get to, if we've chosen to follow Jesus Christ as our Savior. And just imagine this huge tree, and it's doing one of two things. It's either flourishing and being very beautiful, fruitful, it's multiplying, or when we deal with sexual brokenness or any form of sin or anything that separates us from the heart of Christ, what happens to the fruit on that tree? It starts to rot. It starts to wilt. I There's fruit on the ground. It just starts to smell. And that's kind of just what I get what do we need to do when we see those the tree, or if we're the tree in that scenario? What is the what is the root that God is trying to reveal to us? And it doesn't have to be with sexual brokenness. It can be about anything and everything. So that's just kind of a fun visual that I kind of got of what roots do we all have as leaders, as followers of Christ? We all have something, and we're never going to arrive. Uh, but we know that we have a God in heaven who sees us, who knows us, who wants to be our healer, our redeemer, and. So that's just kind of what I had in mind and just wanted to share that I've, I've been working with a lot of young adult women who have been sexually broken and they're really wrestling and struggling with singleness and they're desiring to be married and they're desiring a husband. Even at ages 18, 19, 20, they're wondering, you know, what's wrong with me and why, did, why isn't he here yet? And I think this can go for both male or female. 
And the thing is that when I sit down and talk with anything, any anybody about this topic, it's simply bringing forth the awareness that we are all sexual human beings. We all have dreams. We all have desires. We all have um, something in us that says, I was created for more than this, and I want to offer myself to someone else um, in intimacy. And so just sitting down with young adult women and saying, it, it's not bad that you're dealing with and having these questions right. or desiring right. these questions or you know wanting more of what god has but the sin enters the scene is when our flesh mm. chooses to make the decision for us versus the will of god or the word of god when it says that we shall um, not have sex outside of marriage so it's just coming at it in a healthy way um that the church maybe has not been able to explain i mean my sex talk was no drugs, no sex, no alcohol. See you at midnight. And my mom would wave out the door. Okay, that is not the healthiest approach that a 18-year-old needs as I'm running out the door to hang out with my boyfriend or a group of friends. Whether I'm single, dating, it doesn't matter. So just bringing forth that if you're listening today, maybe you're a leader that's really wrestling and struggling with your own um, sexuality or your own um, questions that you have or maybe just frustrated in a season of singleness that... God can come in and tame those dreams, tame those desires until your wedding night. Not until you meet the person you're going to marry, but until that wedding night. And they'll, they're not going to die, but just to invite God in on that conversation and to constantly surrender. So that's just my little spiel of what I wanted to encourage you guys with as a listener, um, that sexuality is real identity is real but we do have a savior in heaven who is looking down and wanting to intervene on our behalf so when we start surrendering those things we really get to see the fruitfulness instead of feeling like that tree that's just rotting and we're not dealing with those root issues of which you know we could really be wrestling in and through so enough about me because we have dr alan tennyson here josiah do you want to kick off the next question under ministry leaders and the questions they may have yeah i think one of the most popular questions dr tennyson and that we're hearing a lot of coast to coast, people in our state and beyond, how do you stay ahead of the cultural norms and continue to grow as a lifelong learner? Many leaders have started maybe by going to college or seminary, but there's, um, like you even explained early in your journey, you had a desire to learn and grow more and to become a lifelong pursuer of mm -hmm. God's wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. So how do you stay ahead of cultural norms and grow as a lifelong leader personally. Yeah, and I, I think it's a good thing to point out. It's it, college, seminary, graduate school are phenomenal, but it is expensive to be a professional student. And so, how do we do this in our everyday lives? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Uh, for me, I mean, w one major advantage I have is I have this freedom in my job to go to academic conferences. And I will go to conferences that are, are, of course, conferences sometimes put on by Christians in the academic world where I'm getting to hear their research, mm -hmm. uh, research in theology, but also sociology, anthropology. But then I can also go to conferences that aren't Christian exclusive. And, you know, I've been able to set in on sessions uh, on atheism and hear what are really attacks. Uh, it's not always, you know, it's put more carefully than that, but essentially is, is building up a, a new form of attack for the Christian faith that I'm realizing I'm hearing this now, but in about five to ten years, the rest of the church might hear this. And that's an incredible advantage for me to hear this now. You know, it's going to these kinds of things that let me kind of see the trend, say, in neo-paganism before anyone in the church in, that I was connected to or the greater community seemed to know that this was even a thing. 
And so, you know, that's one way. And I know there's a lot of different conferences a lot of us can go to. I think another way I've tried to stay ahead of cultural norms is by learning to pay attention to media, both social and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, love, uh, you know, I have a variety of people I'm connected to on Facebook and a variety, a range politically, and sometimes that in itself teaches me uh, where people are. Uh, uh, but also media itself, what's, what's out there? That's, that's, what is it that people aren't just saying, but what are they paying attention to? What are the popular works? What are the popular TV shows? What are the popular movies? What is it that, that is replacing the stories of our culture? Mm. Uh, that these are now the shared stories because they still come with their own set of values. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I think that sometimes they can even give shifts in our understanding of morality. Uh, how much does, say, a TV show like Modern Family actually shape the way that people saw gay marriage? Right. And so it's it's knowing those things. And and I'm not saying that because I don't think all popular works are necessarily spiritually healthy. Right. Uh, so, for instance, I've never read, I've never seen Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. but I know it's a thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, from, I guess, a few years ago now, but I know it's a thing. My wife was a part of a women's group that was a mix of Christian, non-Christian, and it became a thing there of some women reading it. And so, okay, what are they talking about? And, and how is this shifting? So it's paying attention to that. Something else I like to pay attention to is in political science, it's something known as the Overton window. And it's this kind of concept of, of you think of a window that is, is basically a, a gliding window, uh, uh, that there's a whole spectrum of ideas on a certain issue. And that window, right in the middle, is whatever idea is currently policy. On either side of that are the ideas that may be preferences. On either side of that are ideas that are still acceptable. Then you have ideas on the far end of the spectrum that are entirely unacceptable because they're not within the window. And as culture develops, that window shifts. Mm -hmm. So that what might have been unacceptable, unimaginable, say 30 years ago, uh, gay marriage, might be policy today. Mm -hmm. And what might have been policy, or at least acceptable back then, might be entirely unacceptable today. And sometimes it's paying attention to what's going on in media and politics and seeing in all of these issues, where is the Overton wish window shifting? Mm-hmm. So in the abortion debate, that we, we used to go from, uh, we want or abortions to be legal but rare, to now moving to this shift in, in abortions for everybody is what it sometimes feels like, but this celebration of this reproductive freedom. And again, that's the language that we use because the language also shifts. Well, it's the Overton window that's changing, and it's being able to pay attention to that, to see where the shift is, because at some point what the church says is going to be outside of that window. And we have to be ready for that and have to be prepared to give an account for why we are saying what we are saying, but also understanding why other people are saying what they're saying. Uh, So those are some things that I do to try and stay ahead of cultural norms. Absolutely. That is so good. And you obviously are a lifelong learner. So what have you learned to do to lead yourself um, academically, theologically, and spiritually? Uh, one thing I try to do uh, is, is I want to take time to reflect so I don't waste time reacting. That's great. You know, and that kind of covers all three of those. Mm. But that you have to create time in your day, and I'll say sometimes it, it feels impossible, especially if you're the parent of a young child, (laughs) but to take time in your day to be able to reflect, to think things through, 
to see something from another position, to understand another point of view. I'll say this sometimes to my students. Uh, you have the freedom to disagree with someone else, but you simply can't reject what you don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. You can say, I don't know enough about this yet, but you can't just out of hand reject something you haven't taken the time to understand. If we don't spend the time reflecting, we're gonna waste our time reacting. And I think that applies academically, I think it applies theologically, and I think it applies spiritually. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I think of reflection spiritually, it also is meditation. Meditating on God, meditating on His Word, making sure that I have that time, because it's in my offline time. You know, my time where if we, you know, kind of, I've seen this analogy before in anthropology, where I'm not hunting the woolly mammoth now, now I'm around the campfire. That's the time when I develop. That's the time when I sing songs. That's the time, it's that leisure time that I actually get creative. And if we don't create that time for ourselves, uh, we're always gonna be reacting. We're always gonna feel like we're being led or being pushed rather than being people who are able to lead. That's good. Oh my word, that's fun. I, I just wrote down reflect so you don't automatically reject and you don't react. You know, giving yourself space to read. And really, it's overreact, right? That right. We, we haven't taken the time to understand something, so then we overreact to it. Phenomenal. So, Dr. Tennyson, maybe it's one, maybe it's a few, but what are some of your top resources for those who long to learn and grow as a pastor or leader? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this up into kind of four different things, because I want to talk about what we need to deepen, and in order to deepen, what do we need to develop? As a leader, as a pastor especially, there's four areas that I want to grow. I want to deepen my interior life. I want to deepen my spiritual life. I want to deepen my support system. And I want to deepen my pastoral ability. And to do those things, the things that I have focused on for my interior life, and, and this isn't the only thing, I think reflection is part of this, but I've learned to develop my library. Uh, to build a set of resources that I can not only turn to for answers, but just by knowing, I become someone who has these resources within me. That, you know, the deeper I dig the well, the more water I'm going to have to draw out for other people. So good. And so, you know, especially for a pastor, I say, you start working on your library. Start working on commentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it that you're going to be speaking on? Do you have the right books for that? Uh, start looking uh, for books on particular issues that matter today. Uh, and of course, it doesn't have to be books. It can be articles. There's things I can read in journals, and even sometimes that someone will send me this thing through Facebook, and I'm like, that is the best I've ever heard on that. <laughs> Print that out, right, right. Have that somewhere so that yep. I can use that, learn it, be able to go back to it. Something I've done, and I started doing this as a pastor, not, not as a professor, is trying to find one really good book on everything that comes up. So that in terms of Christian theology, people ask questions about Jesus, they ask questions about the Holy Spirit. Who is it that I would turn to and I would double-check myself or I would read for myself? Or they ask questions about how do I hear God's voice? How do I, well, okay, do, do I have resources I can draw from that can deepen that? And I'm building that library. Uh, and so, you know, doing that helps me develop that interior life. Because as I like to say, the more you, you know, sometimes I, I say this to even my faculty, we're not just finding the right textbooks for our students in class. We want to be so well, so knowledgeable, so, so uh, gifted in what we're teaching that really we're the best textbook that they have. Mm -hmm. And that as I develop my interior life, I become that book for other people. 
that I'm able to draw from this and give them. So I think that's important. But in terms of resources, you know, it's also the Holy Spirit. That is the ultimate resource. Yes. And that's developing yes. that spiritual life. How do, how do you develop that? How do you deepen that? You have to develop your prayer life. Uh, Christians who try to lead without prayer are going to burn out fast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or else we're going to rely on this kind of innate talent that turns our ministry into our personality, as a reflection of our personality, rather than a reflection of what we're called to do in Scripture. I'm, I'm so concerned that we don't take time to develop our prayer life. We don't take time to know how to wait on God, how to hear from God. Uh, how to allow God to become a bigger resource for us in our day-to-day. Uh, so many times in ministry, I get caught up in things as a pastor. You know, I used to feel like that when one person died in my church, then there was always four other people that died right away. And so, like, I'm doing funeral after funeral or wedding after wedding or crisis after crisis. And, and there are some times where I'm, I'm going from the time I wake up until late at night and I'm doing ministry. And so I have to rely on God in the middle of that, but those times when I'm not so overburdened is when I can take that time and make sure that I spend that with God and I learn to develop that. Uh, I think we have to know how to deepen our support system, and the way we do that is by developing our friendships. Uh, Ministry is lonely. It can be very lonely. Uh, One thing that has always troubled me, and it's, it's a reflection of both Catholicism and Protestantism, is we don't always treat pastors as if they're members of the congregation. Mm. You know, that you're, you know, you're a leader, but you're not meant to be a leader set apart. You're still part of the flock that you shepherd. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is still your community. And so what we do find is a lot of pastors who feel isolated. Because, you know, it's not always appropriate to go, you don't go to a new believer and always want to share your struggles. So who do you turn to? Who is it that you have in your life that is a friend that can build you up, that can support you, that can be there for you? Um, I had a pastor friend once that I had a moral failing, and immediately he felt isolated. He lost his job, you know, and he's still a brother in Christ. And so what do I do? First time, you know, I hear about it, I get on the phone, I call him, I take him out to eat. We do this whole night together where I never bring up what happened. Never. I mean, it's, you know, and and we get home, and he looks at me, and he said, this is the first night in two weeks where I've been able to not just think about my failure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's trying to be that brother. This is what he needed at that moment. So if we develop our friendships in ministry, they become a support system for us that is, is also a resource for us. And then I think we have to deepen our pastoral ability. And the way I would do that is focus on developing your compassion. You know, a lot of people get into ministry because they feel like they love people. But compassion, I think, is, is something else. Compassion is that ability to experience a love for people that really goes beyond what even in the moment they may, you may feel like they deserve. Uh, there are people that can get on your nerves in ministry. <laughs> there are people that uh, can really not just try your patience, but they're just coming at the wrong time for you. I had a, a former professor at another school who had been a former pastor, and I asked him, why did you leave the pastorate for the classroom? And he said to me, well, honestly, I knew I wasn't called to be a pastor. And I said, how? How'd you know that? He said, because every time someone came to my office for counseling, I'd always say, look, buddy, I got problems of my own. 
And he said, I just realized I'm not really a good shepherd, right? I, I'm not. You've got to develop that compassion. Yeah. And I think that actually takes time because you want to develop it healthily. You know, compassion is different than taking emotional responsibility for everyone. And you've got to learn what that difference is. Uh, how can I be compassionate with people? And that helps develop your pastoral ability, because I really believe this. When the people that you lead, that you shepherd, when they know, know that you love them, mm -hmm. they will let you get away with a lot. The people who know that I love them will let me speak into their life, sometimes harshly, with love, but sometimes you gotta, you got to tell someone the truth in a way that's going to get their attention, and they will take it because they already know that they're loved. They don't feel attacked. Yeah. They don't feel unsafe because that relationship has already been established. You deepen, deepen, develop your compassion, and you can deepen that pastoral ability. Awesome. Well, we know that you are a person of compassion, that you have healthy people in your life, and we know that your spiritual walk is continually growing. Interior life is obviously something that you are always working on as well, but you had said the word library, and we're in the part of the series where we talk about the library of stories that I'm sure that you have. <laughs> so we have, this is my favorite question. Josiah got to ask this last time. This is my favorite question. Would you be willing to tell us one of the most epic failures you have experienced in ministry? Not because I thrive on hearing people's failures, but because there's so much to learn in ministry and it's fun to learn from other people because we all have our moments. <laughs> so I know you have a library of stories. Are there a couple that you want to share? I can share. You know what? I can share <laughs> stories that are funny, uh, uh, that at the time weren't funny. Uh, but, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that, and then I'll get a little more serious. You know, you think of epic failure. What does that mean, right? There are times I've just screwed up. I remember once when I was a youth pastor, I was in charge of the youth Christmas program. And so I wrote an entire Christmas play. It involved songs. It in, I mean, it involved the, everyone in the youth group. I, I wrote a part where I knew each one of them could do, so everyone was involved. And at the end, it was this whole thing. It was going to take up the whole Sunday night. At the end, it ends with everyone in the story. It was like three or four different stories converging, and everyone comes to the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and this whole thing. So I'm, I'm doing this, and I, I've worked on this, and and. I forgot to put the baby Jesus on the stage, hidden, where he could be pulled out. And so in the middle of this production, Mary comes up. She's supposed to pull Jesus out from this thing, and now she's holding him, and he's not there. And she gets mad. She's like one of our youth sponsors playing Mary, 20 years old. She gets mad because he's not there. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, and so she looks at me. And I'm in the very back, and I'm doing this motion, air baby, air baby. You know, just pretend like you got a baby. She shakes her head no in the middle of the play and just stops. No. We have to stop the music, turn on the lights. And I hand the baby to her brother, who just recently got out of the Marine Corps. And I'm like, bring this baby to your sister, because we can't go on now until she has the baby. And rather than hand the baby to her, he takes the baby Jesus Tosses and throws him, him like a football <laughs> across the congregation. She catches, the brother and sister, she catches him. 
And of course, I thought, you know, I had the presence of mind I would tell people it was planned. I was representing Jesus coming from heaven. But no, I just was like, I forgot the baby Jesus. <laughs> so it becomes this great story that I, you know, I would use now in sermons of how at Christmas we could forget Jesus and get everything else right. But at the time, it was just this, like, every, you know, it ruined the entire play for the entire church, and it was my first time as youth pastor, right? It was my first year, and I just, you know, it, we had to stop the whole production. Uh, there's other times I've just said dumb things right from the pulpit. I remember probably the funniest I ever did was I was preaching on uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I was trying to talk about how in the Greek that word seek is a little bit stronger than we sometimes think of the word in English, and it means more like strive. And so I'm, I'm trying to talk about, you know, we seek the kingdom of God, we strive for the kingdom of God, and I got the words confused, and I started talking about if we want the kingdom of God, we have to streak. Oh, no. and, and of course, the whole church just loses it while I'm preaching on this, right? And and you know, and they were just gone the rest of the service. So I mean, there's there's embarrassing things that happens, but you know, those aren't failures. Mistakes aren't failures. You know, in that sense, we all make mistakes. Uh, I think when I think of failure, I think of where have I, as a pastor, actually been unfaithful? Where have I not been? And, and we think of pastoring sometimes as leadership, but the word pastor actually means shepherd. You are, and the shepherd isn't the same thing just as leader, right? It's not knowing how to just manage an organization. Mm-hmm. It's knowing how to shepherd people's souls. And there have been times as a pastor where I have been impatient, where I have not paid attention to what the priority should have been in that moment. And, and I have to say this, what I don't believe is that pastors ever need to think that they're the Messiah for people. You know, my favorite verses in the Bible is John 1.20, I am not the Christ. And that should be, you know, if you get a tattoo of Scripture as a pastor, get that one. You are not the Christ, Mm -hmm. but you are a shepherd. And so there are times where I haven't been the shepherd I could have been, and someone in my community was hurt. Mm -hmm. And so that's that moment where I feel like, okay, the impact I had on that one person, that's my epic failure. And there's more than one story I could tell of that. Thanks for your willingness to share both the, the humorous, but also the, the humbling moments, you know, that you've, you've had in ministry. And let me ask you this to close. If you could leave a room full of college pastors and young adult pastors or listeners today with one thing, what would that one thing be? Uh, the one thing I would leave, and probably any day you ask me, you might get a different answer. But today, it would just be this, the value of patience. Uh, especially because a lot of our people leading young adults are young adults. And I saw this in myself, and I see this now as a college professor and students getting ready to enter into ministry full-time for the first time, is that we don't always recognize the value of patience. Uh, You know, patience is a sign of love, and it's a sign of trust, right? You know, love is patient, love is kind. Uh, When you are impatient with someone else, you're really being unloving towards someone else. Uh, because patience is that willingness to wait. I always say this to my son, patience is knowing how to wait without getting angry. And when you are patient with other people, you're saying that their value is greater than whatever it is that they're keeping you from. So that I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to love you. And I think we have to see that value certainly in ministry, but I also think we have to see that value of patience as a sign of trust in God. Because sometimes as a pastor, I want God to move quicker. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I want my ministry to go in this direction now. And, sure. and sometimes we fall into the comparison trap where I'm comparing how I'm doing with how I think other people are doing and why isn't it working for me the way it is for them and I'm frustrated, maybe I should leave this church or maybe I should. And you know, the, the biggest threat I think for us as pastors when we get impatient is we start taking shortcuts in ministry where we should never take shortcuts. Rather than learning the lessons we should learn through the hard work that it takes to know how to do something well, we take a shortcut so it looks better quicker and we never learn what we should learn. And so you've got to be able to be patient with yourself in ministry. Be patient with God. Yeah. Trust that if God is at work, and, and I said this sometimes as a pastor who's dealing with a person who's going through the same problem again and again, and I'm like, why are they not better yet? Why haven't they solved this yet? No, mm-hmm. I've got to learn to be patient. And then as someone who is under authority, as a lot of our churches, if you're a young adult pastor, you have a lead pastor, you've got to be patient with them because they might not get your vision yet. And it's frustrating to you because sometimes you think when God gives you a vision, that means it's time to go, rather than realizing, no, I might be the very first person God has ever shared this with, and I've got to wait for everyone else to get the vision as well. God is asking me to lay the groundwork for when everyone else is able to move. Because here's my, I really believe this, because I believe in the unity of the church. It's better to go slower and have everyone stay together than to go quicker and get there alone. You have got to learn the value of patience. Amazing golden nugget for a cherry on top. And wow, Dr. Tennyson, such a fun conversation today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And as listeners say, you can learn more about Dr. Alan Tennyson and North Central University when you connect with us on our website at youngadults.today as well as online on social media. Our platforms are at youngadults.today. So until next time, this is Josiah and Micah Keneally hosting Young Adults Today. Have a great one. Plug me in, I'm all wired up right now. Plug me in, I'm getting charged up right now, yeah.